Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week, part two of our look back at 2022 with COVID still surging, the Dobbs decision, and Anthony Fauci's farewell. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter. Welcome uh, back to Conversations on Healthcare. We've been taking a look back at some of the memorable guests from this last year. An incredibly challenging and fascinating year marked by the ongoing pandemic and the shifting landscape as variants of COVID-19 fueled more surges across the country. And Margaret, you're so right. It was a year of more turbulence and unrest, the war in Ukraine, the burgeoning opioid and mental health crisis, more mass shootings and gun violence, and the emergence of a new threat from an old pathogen, monkeypox. And perhaps one of the most seismic events of the year, Mark, was the Supreme Court's controversial Dobbs decision in June. It overturned 50 years of women's reproductive rights under Roe versus Wade, essentially ending protections for American women seeking abortion access, depending on which state they live in. And Margaret, as you know, we welcome two guests who brought clarity into just how seismic an event that Supreme Court ruling was. Robin Marty, director of the West Alabama Women's Center, the last facility in that state to perform abortions. And she was joined by Amanda Allen of The Lawyering Project. That's a legal nonprofit that's seeking to help states navigate the restrictive laws governing women's reproductive freedoms. Because we know that no matter how much money and how many resources you give pregnant people, there are some who are not going to be able to leave the state. It just cannot happen. And those people are going to turn to medication, hopefully, um, hopefully safe medication to terminate their own pregnancy. And they are going to be afraid that they're going to be arrested for it. And so we have to be there because we will be a safe place for them to come to in order to get that follow-up care that in a hospital, they or someone they love might end up investigated and in jail. Well, it is terrifying what is happening. And, and you know, we all said this would happen, right? It's, this is, was never just about abortion, because when you try to regulate these things, then you're putting doctors and other healthcare providers, you're, you're essentially tying their hands. I just read right before this interview, a story about a woman in Louisiana who was 16 weeks pregnant and was forced to labor her dead fetus because the doctors, the hospital doctor's lawyers said, that it would be an abortion under Louisiana law and they could be charged with a crime. That should never happen here. This is not the America that any of us want or deserve. And yet story after story after story is, is just painting this picture of this, this really horrifying reality that we're in where ectopic pregnancies, as you said, Margaret, which are never ever viable, are not being treated right away, where obstetric emergencies are, are getting drawn out to the point of, of near death. Um, and doctors, because of the way these laws are written, doctors don't know how much does a patient have to bleed out before I can provide her care. You know, the ruling has already had a dramatic impact on women's health in multiple uh, red states across the country. We'll continue to examine the impact of this decision in the coming year. And uh, while all of that was going on, it was also a time to explore some interesting uh, sources of innovation in the delivery of healthcare. Dr. Ryan Vega is director of the VA's innovation ecosystem, and he shared with us some of the really groundbreaking work they're doing at Veterans Health Administration. Really, the idea is how do you create a culture where individuals on the front lines now have access to this national opportunity, this national network, where the work that they're doing at one VA, 
has the opportunity to spread across. There's two things that are really important about the Shark Tank competition. One, and we get hundreds of applications a year. We really focus and get those down to the 10 that have some level of evidence. So there's pretty in-depth reviews on the practice or the solution. And two, those that really seem to have the most potential for impact for veterans. This doesn't have to just be technology. These can be processing changes. It could be even potential policy changes. But the other piece of this is that our medical center directors and even our network directors, they're bidding on these practices, which means they're going to invest. They're going to put either human capital or even working capital money to get these projects replicated at their site because they see a need. And it's that replication and that willingness and that buy-in that enables us to really test solutions in multiple different markets. Instead of saying we see something at one place, thus it must be everywhere, we really get to test and vet these solutions out. But what you know about any innovation process or life cycle is it's a very narrow funnel when you get to the end. Not everything's going to make it. You need markets. And so you have to sort of create those uh, quasi-markets, as we call them. But this allows us to really energize the front line, to tap into that entrepreneurial spirit. Those individuals on the front line, they're the best position to understand what's needed, what's potentially going to work, because they're the ones actually doing the work. Uh, and so Shark Tank has really sort of fostered that both entrepreneurial spirit and some of the practices we have seen come out of that uh, are not just changing and saving lives in the VA, but they're actually spreading across uh, American hospitals and saving lives there as well. You know, the pandemic also galvanized interest in how we make our buildings safer. And what a fascinating conversation we had with Joseph Allen, who runs the Healthy Buildings Project at Harvard, where they're seeking to foster more widespread use of technologies that will limit the spread of pathogens. It's a discipline whose time has surely arrived. In the 1970s, we started tightening up our building envelopes in response to the energy crisis. We stopped designing buildings for people, right? We, public health lost its seat at the table in the architectural design and engineering community. So it wasn't a surprise that we had this sick building era. So we were confronted with all of our buildings that many of them that underperform in this era. And this is why that revolution, the healthy building revolution has to change because it should be obvious that we need to design buildings in a way that promote human health. And I think what's become obvious because of COVID, a virus that's spread nearly entirely indoors, that the indoor environment is really impacting all of us all the time and has been underappreciated. So that's the genesis, short genesis of why mm -hmm. we need this revolution to happen. And we welcomed a, a true giant in the field of epidemiology to the show, Dr. Larry Brilliant. He's credited with helping to end the 10,000-year-old smallpox epidemic. Huge accomplishment. In the immediate period before it was eradicated, smallpox killed half a billion people, 300 million to 500 million in the 20th century alone. One out of three people who contracted it died from it. And the way that we were able to eradicate it was by following a unique strategy conceived of by Bill Fagey, who then was working on the smallpox program, became the head of CDC. And that was to find every case of smallpox in the world at the same time and to draw a, a ring of immunity around each case. And that ring was not just geographic, it was sociometric. By investigating the index case, by doing forward and backward tracing, uh, words that we've come to learn about from COVID, but in reality, they have a much deeper meaning than the simple way of uh, 
of thinking about just contact tracing. We were able to immunize all those people who might next get smallpox until there were no more uh, susceptible hosts around. And that's how we eradicated smallpox. And speaking another great thought leader that we had on, Dr. Atul Gawande, uh, on how to improve primary care and healthcare in general. He's the author of the Checklist Manifesto and now is leading uh, administrator at USAID, uh, the world's largest global aid uh, agency. We have discovered in the last century how to make it so that the average person can live 80 plus years of life. That has included uh, 6,000 drugs, 4,000 medical and sur surgical procedures, and a couple thousand public health interventions. And our job has been to deploy that capability town by town to everyone alive. Even within the United States, we have large parts of the population that don't get the benefit of that capability. And being able to have, a, you know, this is a generation of work on our hands. Part of the reason I took this job is COVID made it clear how interconnected we are. And there are 2 billion people in low income parts of the world who simply don't have access to the basic medicines, the public health interventions that make it possible to have that lifespan and that kind of uh, productive contribution to society. And when we don't support and enable that capability to grow, we end up paying the price for it in many, many ways, from direct infection to our, uh, our own uh, political um, loss of support. Um, and so, you know, in politics, it matters, and then it, it matters economically too. And former CDC director Tom Frieden joined us on the show again. He now has resolved to save lives. It's an organization that's dedicated to addressing the global causes of early death or premature mortality, as we call it, such as heart disease and diabetes, and really doing some incredible and groundbreaking work. I think it's very important. There needs to be a clear look. More than a million Americans are dead. Yeah. And if the US had a death rate of Canada's, for example, most of those people would still be alive. What went wrong? But more importantly, what do we need to change so that preventable deaths like this in, in uh, response to a health threat never occur at this level? You know that the US is an outlier. If you look at death rate per 100,000 people in high income countries, the US has a much higher rate than most other countries. And that's not something where the US should be number one. Uh, that's something where we should be a leader. And this kind of review is very important. I became CDC director uh, after 9-11, and we looked really carefully at the 9-11 commission recommendations. And those recommendations changed the way government does business. Did they fix everything? No. Did they make it better? Absolutely. And there's also kind of a reckoning that's important that, that get done so that uh, people who want to know the truth can know what really happened, what went right, what went wrong? Well, as you said, uh, Tom was a former CDC director. Margaret, we've had so many CDC directors on, but we were blessed to have uh, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, the current CDC director, rejoin us, talking about the rollout of the new bivalent COVID booster. And she expressed grave concerns about the low uptake of the booster shots across the population and how the CDC will likely be revamped moving forward. 
people who are seeing most at risk of severe disease and death continue to be those who are unvaccinated or under vaccinated. And so I have always said there is no bad time to become up to date on your on your um, COVID shots. Um, if you haven't gotten a booster um, in the in the year of calendar year of 2022 and you're eligible for a boost, there's no bad time to get one. We are going to be reviewing data on um, these updated boosters, as I mentioned, coming soon. Um, but if you are in a place where you feel like you're at high risk of severe disease, if you're over the age of 50, if you're especially over the age of 65, and there's a lot of infection in your community, you may want to go ahead and not wait for that booster, um, uh, the information from that booster, get the one that is available to you now, and then we'll have further recommendations about when you can get an updated booster in the fall. What we didn't factor into this ongoing crisis was the spread of a pathogen that was known previously only uh, to a small section of Africa, but suddenly monkeypox began spreading quickly and it was largely within uh, the gay community, first across Europe and then across the United States. Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis is a longtime HIV and public health activist who was tapped by the White House to help address the crisis. And he shared his insights with us into how this threat could be contained. We have two different equity pilots that are happening at the same time. The first equity pilot, I like to call the macro pilot, which is large events that uh, that come upon jurisdictions that focus on LGBTQAI plus individuals. The micro version is what if you don't have an event with 50,000 people? What if you have smaller ideas? Well, big ideas for smaller groups of people that may benefit um, equity. And so the second, um, equity innovation pilot really focuses on providing uh, a supply of vaccine to jurisdictions to really be a little bit of a lab to see what uh, what works best to get vaccine in people's arms. Um, and so we're going to allocate for both of those 10,000 vials. It's a pilot. And if it goes well, we'll obviously extend it. Um, but that's really what the strategy is to try to, you know, do a real equity intervention, which is what can we do to augment what's happening in a jurisdiction so that we can reach people in a way that they're not being reached by the sort of industrial string strategies for vaccine distribution. You know, we also welcomed House Majority Whip James Clyburn back to the show. You know, Representative Clyburn is from uh, South Carolina. And of course, we have our roots as an organization in South Carolina with one of our founding board members, uh, Reba Moses, born there in the 1920s. Uh, so it was great to talk with him. And one of the nation's early leaders, uh, Representative Clyburn is in the civil rights movement, longtime champion of community health centers. Well, you know, uh, I started this battle, uh, I shouldn't call it a battle, let's just say this venture with uh, community health centers more than 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, I recall, uh, back when Senator Fritz Hollins wrote his book, The Case Against Hunger. Uh, and we came, uh, took that book as a foundation upon which to develop the Duke, uh, Buford Jasper Comprehensive Healthcare Program, the Franklin Fetter uh, Center Healthcare Program there in Charleston Rural Missions. And I've been on a uh, community health center's, uh, let's just say, journey ever since. And I've always had it as my goal to try to get a community health center located uh, within a commuting distance of every American. And so every time legislation comes forward, I'm always on health care. I'm always trying to figure out how uh, we can get uh, community health centers to benefit 
from this legislation. And so it was uh, in the, uh, the Rescue Act, the, uh, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, the Infrastructure Bill. You go through all those bills uh, and you will see uh, some attention being given uh, to community health centers uh, in order to make them more efficient, more effective, and more equitable in uh, carrying out their duties and responsibilities. And we welcomed Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo. Dr. Nuzzo is one of a growing group of very promising young public health and epidemiology specialists. She's leading Brown University's new pandemic center. Uh, this is a discipline we are likely to see growth in in the coming years as we uh, train our next generation to prepare for what we hope will never come, which is the next pandemic. First of all, when I first um, began the conversations with Ashish about coming up to Brown to work on pandemics, it was actually um, uh, in between uh, where we saw um, a rise in cases and then the subsequent really uh, meteoric rise of the Omicron variant. Mm -hmm. um, and that just tells you that even when the case numbers are low, even when perhaps there's a glimmer of hope in the future, it's worth still uh, working on these issues and digging into them because, you know, even if the virus uh, were no longer part of our, our daily thinking, uh, there's going to be more pandemic threats in the future. And we need to make sure that we're never again, um, you know, caught so vulnerable um, in the ways that we were for this one. Um, but in terms of this one, I mean, Look, it's still clearly a significant health threat. The fact that we have um, more than 400 Americans dying each day, thousands of Americans each week uh, is really, you know, something um, quite serious and something that we have to continue to do work on. Well, Margaret, uh, what a year 2022 was, and it was in part made by the fact that there was a national midterm elections and there was much speculation that there would be a so-called red wave as the ballot uh, in November was being counted. We launched a series of shows, Healthcare on the Ballot, welcoming health policy experts like Victoria Knight of Axios and uh, Cheryl Gay Stolberg of The New York Times to share their insights on what was at stake in the November election. Well, I think it'll certainly be an abortion election, a Roe v. Wade election. I think that we've seen that the Supreme Court's decision in the Dobbs case has really upended what a lot of people thought was going to be um, a, a Republican, if not a rout, certainly Republican victories uh, in both the House and the Senate. And now that's looking um, less so. Democrats are really energized to go to the polls and they are, you know, angry and mad about this ruling and they want Congress to do something about it. And we're going to see President Biden, in fact, talk about it just today. Uh, he's emphasizing this as a as a factor in the midterm. So I do think abortion will play a role and to a lesser extent health care writ large, because health care is always an issue. It's so important to so many Americans. So even when inflation is top of mind, health care is going to be on the ballot as well. I think Republicans know that it's really embedded in the system and, and it's popular. People like Medicare. Um, and so I think they're more focused on maybe like if we're talking about Medicare, like expanding Medicare Advantage options or um, that's something they, they really like, um, which are, you know, private private plans within Medicare. So um, I don't see that as um, too much of a reality, but. You know, you never know. Um, we'll, we'll see what happens um, depending on the, the midterm um, outcomes. 
It's long been said that Medicare is the third rail of American politics for, and that's for a reason that, you know, nobody wants to touch it. And after the election, with all the results finally in, uh, we welcomed opposing views on how the election results would impact health policy moving forward uh, with former Obama CMS administrator, Dr. Don Berwick, uh, and Jim Capretta, former, former Office of uh, Management and Budget Director under President Bush, to discuss where there might be room for bipartisanship. And we heard some of that, Mark. There should be bipartisan interest in a strong public health infrastructure uh, we, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how you vote. You're going to pay the price if we don't have one. And that's got to be government. You can't. There's no pub, private sector public health defense. We did talk about drugs. Uh, we, I think we're all worried about it. We have different solutions. My solutions are certainly different from Jim's, but we're concerned enough. We ought to find our way to some answers. The mental health and substance misuse, the substance uh, misuse uh, arena is desperate, killing tens of thousands of Americans. And we have not yet formulated strong public policy on that. And I think we probably could find a bipartisan Uh route there. On markets and the ACA, we will continue to disagree. I don't have much faith that market solutions are going to be the ones that work. But then again, I haven't studied Jim's book yet. So maybe I'll change my (laughs) mind. (laughs) Well, I think on this question of uh, mental health and substance abuse, it's really, you know, bordering on really a crisis in the United States yeah. at this point. Oh, yeah. And um, it really needs to be attended to by both parties because it's affecting so many aspects of our society. And I think there is great interest in both parties and being just much more aggressive in putting together a national strategy to really get the problems that are out there a little bit better under control and directed and treated. And uh, so I, I'm hopeful that that it could be one big area where there could be a lot of bipartisan agreement and movement. And then on these other things, some of them are by necessity. They're going to have to do Medicare probably on a bipartisan basis because neither party probably has enough kind of political capital to do it on its own. And that's so important. We really want to find the seam of opportunity where people from opposing views can come together. And, you know, Margaret, uh, when we started the show in 2009, we were really interested in highlighting innovators seeking to disrupt the status quo in American healthcare. Billionaire and entrepreneur Mark Cuban joined us on the show this past year talking about his plans to shake up the prescription drug market with his cost plus drugs. Significantly, I mean, there's very much a vertically integrated um, environment right now where health um, insurance companies own PBMs and own retail pharmacies and are expanding into other areas of healthcare. And they keep on creating these fortresses where they control the left pocket and the right pocket. And by having so much control, they they're able to create an environment where pricing is opaque. It's confusing and they have a lot of control. I mean, and on top of that, because they're able to contract with insurers and major corporations and consultants, they're able to. play these games where they'll say, okay, if you want access to the, all these lives, then you have to do business manufacturers the way we want to do business. And that is unfortunate and creates a lot of pricing distortion for patients. And we were able to welcome Dr. Fauci back on the show after his announcement that he was stepping down after more than 50 years at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease at the NIH. He hopes to keep finding ways to inspire young people to enter the world of research uh, and science. And I think he's probably going to be pretty effective. 
I want to utilize the 54 years of experience I have at the NIH, 38 of which is as director, and my experience with seven presidents to use that by writing, by lecturing, by getting involved in advisory capacity to inspire particularly the younger generation Uh to get involved in science and medicine, public health, and particularly to seriously consider public service. I will do that perhaps writing a memoir. I can't say for sure, but that's one thing that I might do because people might be interested, particularly the younger people, uh-huh. of what the, um, the, the the different milestones in a person's career. You know, Dr. Fauci joined us uh, on the show uh, many times over the years, uh, talking about uh, the dramatic work uh, he did on HIV, uh, his work in the Ebola outbreak. And from the very beginning of the COVID pandemic, he's been a steadfast practitioner of science-driven medicine and research and will be missed in the public arena. I will say that I have followed him and his work uh, closely since the early 1980s, and it is impossible uh, to calculate the dramatic contributions that he's made to health uh, and science, Mark, uh, even even beset by the personal attacks in this most uh, current round and, and a little bit uh, in some of his earlier work, he has always maintained his integrity, his grace, his willingness to listen. I uh, kept his focus on helping us navigate, uh, including through this, we hope, once-in-a-lifetime pandemic. Yeah, and such an influential uh, voice in um, the uh, American healthcare landscape. Uh, also, a little personal plug for us, if you know anyone interested in the quest to end health inequity and injustice in the world and how a small band of dedicated folks can make a huge impact. Pick up the new book uh, about our community health organization. Uh, I should note that all proceeds are going to our uh, domestic violence uh, uh, shelter um, and uh, learn about how it began. Uh, Wesleyan-based writer and author Charlie Barbers wrote a fascinating uh, look uh, entitled Peace and Health. It's available at Amazon or your favorite independent bookstore. And if you're a 20-something, the parent of a 20-something, or once were a 20-something who set out to change the world, it's a great book to pick up and read. And you can learn more about us, access all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. So thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for watching us on the podcast, however you choose to join us. Most of all, for being part of our show this year at Conversations on Healthcare. Happy New Year. Happy New Year and more to come in 2023. Peace and health. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded in the Knowledge and Technology Center studios in Middletown, Connecticut, and is brought to you by the Community Health Center, now celebrating 50 years of providing quality care to the underserved, where healthcare is a right, not a privilege. CHC1.com and CHCRadio.com.